Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. Hmm. Oh, I forgot to say, Jeffy Kennedy, author of Fantasy and Romance and all of the places they intersect. In the Venn diagram of fantasy and romance, I am in that delightful, uh, what do you call that shape? It's not ellipse because it's got points. Um, mm, we could geek out on this. Uh, anyway, I'm in that shape. <laughs> I like to think that it's instead of a gray area, it's like a, a new color made from two other wonderful colors. But when you put them together, it's even more wonderful. I'm that color. I'm that color that like there's a weird name for, but nobody knows exactly what it looks like. There. <laughs> Today is Monday, November 30th, post-Thanksgiving, and I have broken out the uh, holiday mugs. These are Starbucks holiday mugs. Um, I have some gold ones, too. You'll see them in the ensuing weeks. I bought these in Bismarck, North Dakota, and they used to be much prettier. They've kind of... Um, you know, lost some of their shine. They remind me of shiny Christmas ornaments, though, and they make me happy. Hmm. So happy that I dribble when I drink. <laughs> so, um, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in the U.S. is over. I had a really nice four days off. Um, I... You all know that I was sad and weepy about not getting to see family for Thanksgiving. And there were moments of, of sadness that way. Um, there, it was also nice to stay home. Um, there was a, a peacefulness to it. I was glad that I took the time off. I'm glad that I um, didn't try to write on Friday or over the weekend. I was briefly thinking about writing on Sunday and I decided, no, nope, I'm really going to give myself all these days off. And it was good. I didn't turn on the computer at all on Thursday, Friday, and most of Saturday. I finally got online on Saturday afternoon at like four of my time and did a, um, online cocktails with a, a friend of mine in New York City who's um, going through kind of a big transition. Uh, and so that was really nice to see her. She's someone I usually see a whole lot at conferences and haven't seen at all. Well, when did I last see her? I saw her in last in Dublin, which makes me sound so cosmopolitan, doesn't it? Yes, I saw her in Dublin at Worldcon. And... Uh, him, so more than a year. So it was nice to see her face uh, and talk for a bit, have have some bubbly as we usually do when we're together. And after that, I sort of triaged email. That's the thing about taking time off the internet is all the things build up. And so then Sunday, I dug more into dealing with business again. So I've still got to deal with a lot of financial stuff, it being the end of the month and all the royalties coming in. I've got to divide stuff out and all of that. But got big chunks done, so that was good. And I finished the 
uh, master bathroom. Now, it doesn't come as a remodel, does it? It's like a facelift. I, I had finished the painting. I finished tweaking. I put stuff um, up, you know, like shower towel holders, all of those things. Um, got all of that done. Scrubbed the floor because even though I put down drop cloths, uh, stuff still got on the brick floor. All of that kind of thing. And I completely cleaned out all of the cabinets. So we moved into this house a little bit more than 11 years ago, which it's amazing to me that it's been that long. Um, soon this will be the house that we have lived in the longest, Dave and I, of any of our, um, what, four places that we have lived together? Yeah, pretty much four places that we've lived in jointly. Uh, but yeah, mom, I think we lived at 6th Street House for 12 years and back up in Laramie and we're going to beat that record, amazingly enough. So I figure I need to start figuring out, you know, when you're younger, you move a lot, right? You know, like a different apartment, you know, in college, it's a different dorm room, different apartment, grad school, move around place to place. Um, I don't know. I've, I lived in a lot of different places. And when you move frequently, you don't deal with the sort of accretion of stuff and gradual wear and tear of stuff, like if you live in a place for a long time. So I've decided that if I do end up staying in this house longer, I need to think in terms of like every 10 years, I need to redo a room, redecorate, maybe redecorate, facelift, something like that. <clears throat> so now the master bath is completely done. I cleared out all the cabinets. I filled a garbage bag full of stuff. It was striking to me how much of the stuff I have is geared towards travel. Because when I had the day job, I traveled, well, sometimes two weeks out of every month. It's amazing to me to think about that now. Uh, when, <laughs> yeah, I was just sort of thinking about like, what do people who have to travel for their day, day jobs do during the pandemic? I mean, I guess you go, you have to go, but geez. Um, <laughs> I won't get sidetracked by that, I promise. So still, I have all this stuff for travel, and I had so many of those bottles of shampoos and conditioners, which I actually do use, but they weren't well organized, and a lot of them were way old, so I threw them out, and I cleared out, I cleared out so much stuff, you guys, amazing amount of stuff, garbage bags full, and so now my drawers are all beautifully organized, everything is scrubbed down, I decorated the bathroom in a neat way, um, which I guess it hadn't occurred to me to do before to put art in there. But I'm really getting more focused about something that I have always known, which is that what we surround ourselves by is, is partly what goes into our creative wealth. And so I think it's important to remember to surround ourselves with things we actually want to look at. And in the mornings, I, you know, that's my quiet time of the day, you know, the subconscious is very fresh and subject to suggestion first thing in the morning. And I thought, well, why shouldn't my bathroom be the place where, you know, as I'm getting ready for the day, I'm filling it with things that um, fill me in return. So I had a good time choosing the art and various things that I put 
on uh, on the walls and on the countertops. And I, I got it so that instead of having like the scatter of bottles and cosmetics and what have you on the bathroom counter, that it's all in the drawers now, organized. And the only things on the counters are pretty things. So I think I can maintain that. So that was satisfying to get that done. And glad that I had solid time to do that. Um, although, you know, really most of the stuff I did productive was on Saturday and Sunday. Thursday, I cooked. I cooked and we lounged. And that was a nice relaxing day. And Friday, I didn't do much of anything at all. I hung out and read and I took a yoga class online. And other than that, I didn't do anything. And it was good to have that kickback day. So I have several things that I wanted to talk to you guys about. I think I'll save this one. Actually make notes. Yeah. Um, one thing I promised to do was discuss agents and just in general, how agents work. Uh, some, uh, this is something that's familiar to many of the authors out there, especially agent ones. But I thought that I would take just a few moments because uh, one of my readers sent me, I think she's a reader's mainly not also a writer, but she had sent me a message via Instagram over the, the long weekend. And she said to me, well, uh, that, she had a question about how much her sister-in-law should pay an agent that her sister-in-law, you know, and it was clearly like a Thanksgiving dinner conversation kind of thing that her sister-in-law was considering self-publishing. And she was wondering, you know, like how much do you pay an agent? And it's amazing to me that people can even ask this question. So that's partly why I wanted to talk about this because rule of thumb, number one is you never, ever, 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 ever pay an agent. Authors do not pay agents. I don't, I cannot put that strongly enough. If an agent is asking you to pay them anything for any reason, they are not a legitimate agent. And so I don't know the whole story there. Um, like if she's thinking about self-publishing, why is she thinking about an agent? Um, it sounds predatory to me, which is something that happens to people who have, uh, you know, who are first self-publishing. Um, there, there's a lot of predators waiting to swoop in and take advantage of that. Sorry that my light's weird this morning. <laughs> I didn't want to spend a huge long time figuring out the right light. The sun's coming up. So you get dappled me today. I am... As if I am in a forest glen imparting druidic wisdom to you. How's that? Um, okay, so here's some things. If you self-publish, you do not need an agent. There's no reason for you to have an agent when you self-publish. The single caveat being that if you decide you want to sell rights to someone else, like foreign rights or audio rights, if a traditional publisher wants to pick you up. And in all of these cases, you are selling rights, right? Because as an author, 
you own what you write. You, in some ways, that's why you don't have to copyright your work. You know, and people can you know dice this and and argue about it. But what's important is to keep in mind that if you wrote it, you own it. Um, copyright can assist with that in some ways, otherwise not. But no matter what, you wrote a thing, you create a thing, you own the thing. That's the basis of the law. You own the thing until, unless, unless and until, you sell the rights. Now, if you sell the rights, let's say, for example, I sold my rights to the Forgotten Empires books to St. Martin so that they could publish them. And they bought only certain kinds of rights. They don't get to like own it forever. They don't buy it from me and then I get zero control. Uh, when you hear stories like that, it's often Hollywood who does that. Like they want to own it in perpetuity. But that's always something to look for in contracts is if they say that they own all rights forever in all ways to the thing. That's also a red flag. You only sell specific rights. So for example, the St. Martin... We would have sold um, first English rights worldwide so that they could publish the book in English and sell it anywhere and sell that version anywhere in the world. And that's the right that they bought. So, for example, if someone wants to translate it to French and sell it in France, they have to buy those new rights from me. Somebody wants to make, well, they, they also sold the audio rights. So, you know, we, we did the audio rights along with that. But if somebody wants to do something else with those books, if they wanted to sell it to Hollywood, then they would have to buy those rights from me because I still own those books. Those books always belong to me. Other people just essentially rent the ability to publish them from me. If you are doing that in any way, shape, or form, then it can be convenient to have an agent. And you don't have to. You could run through a lawyer instead. But having someone who knows how to do how to read contracts and negotiate can be a really good thing. If you're not selling rights to anyone else, then you really don't need an agent. Self-publishing means that you are publishing it yourself, right? So, for example... If I had chosen to self-publish the Orchid Throne instead of selling the rights to do so to St. Martin, then I could have done that. I could have paid for a cover, paid for the editing, paid for my formatting, and uploaded it to Amazon and so forth. So, you know, to pick a recent example, we look at Under a Winter Sky, where there's the five of us in the anthology, me, Melissa Marr, Kelly Armstrong, Grace Draven, and Leslie Penelope. And they all agreed that we would put our stories together into this volume. We paid for the cover. We all chipped in. We paid for formatting, chipped in for that, put it up on the retailers. And we, we essentially rent space on like Amazon's platform, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, they take a cut. They take 30% of our sales of that book uh, because they brought the audience to us, right? So basically it's like um, paying any kind of fee. Uh, like if you have a an RV and you want to park at an RV resort, 
then you pay them your $30 a day. You still own your RV and everything that goes with it and is inside of it. You are simply paying for the privilege to park it in this place where you have access to various amenities, right? That's essentially how it works. We self-publish, we get 70% of everything we sell on Amazon and so forth. Um, on my own website, that's why my website store is the best deal for me because, I mean, I invested in setting up the store that cost me a fair amount of money to do, but everything that I sell on my website, I get all of that except for a very small piece that PayPal and Stripe extract, right? Again, their piece for me using their service to translate money. So PayPal takes out, I don't know, um, like if it's a $4.99 book, PayPal, I end up getting like $4.73, something like that. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly small percentage. As opposed to on Amazon where they would take 30%. So... In all of those dealings, when you're self-publishing like that, you notice that I'm not selling my rights to anybody. Therefore, I don't need an agent. I don't need an agent to take 15%, which is industry standard, for me to be doing all the work. Now, it's good to have an agent to negotiate contracts for you, sure. But if that's the only reason you're going to use an agent, you might as well just give a lawyer an upfront fee. Because an agent, if they sell a book for you, like we'll go back to Forgotten Empires, Sarah Younger, my agent at Nancy Yost Literary, she sold that three book deal for me to St. Martin, sold those rights to publish those three books. That means that Sarah will get 15% of everything those books earn basically forever. Yeah, um, in, in perpetuity. But that's because... She was the agent of record on that sale. Uh, if if I sold something new, if I like for some reason wasn't working with Sarah anymore and I sold new rights from those books, then th they would either go to me or to like whatever agent negotiated them. So, so that's how it works. Your agent makes money by selling your work. They get 15% of what they sell. And this keeps agents honest. Um, the other thing that an agent can do for you is help you strategize your career, um, help you decide what, what is the best thing for you to be doing going forward. Um, they're also your champion if there are problems, let's say, you know, like if your editor is unhappy about something or if things go wrong, um, they decide to cancel your book, so forth. Um, it's, it's good to have an agent for those reasons. But again, that's always dealing with traditional stuff. <laughs> I'm really amused by the shadows on my face. It's very uh, Halloween. Suck feels nice, though. <laughs> so, so that's the thing. There are these agents, and I'm using air quotes for those of you not on video, um, who say, oh, well, if you pay me this much money, then I will find a publisher for you. I will, a, a lot of times it's tied up with like these vanity presses. Again, vanity presses are where you pay them 
to publish your book. Anytime you are paying somebody to publish your work, that's a no-no. That's, that's wrong because you own the work and you are the one who should be paid for the work as a creator. The only times that you pay out are the ones that I've mentioned where you're essentially renting space on a service. Um, and, but you should still be controlling that. You shouldn't be doing a thing where, you know, like some of these shyster publishers, vanity publishers will say, well, you have to buy a hundred copies of the book. Um, no, no, you shouldn't have to do that. So 20 minutes flew by this morning. Um, if you have more questions, please do ask them and I will, I'm happy to answer and happy to discuss more. I can talk them out and so forth, but that's it in a nutshell. Um, you, you don't pay agents. They, they get a percentage of what they sell for you and that's it. Just like Amazon gets a percentage of what they sell for you, right? Amazon only gets 70% of my book sale if they actually sell the book. I, I don't pay them. <laughs> All right. So first cup of coffee is part of the Frolic Media Podcast Network, and you will find more podcasts you love at frolic.media slash podcasts, including another fabulous podcast called Learning the Tropes. Stay tuned for a promo from them. And you all enjoy the last day of November, and I will talk to you tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, we are Learning the Tropes. I'm Aaron. I'm Clayton. And I'm the romance novel veteran. And I'm the virgin. And every week we read a different romance novel and then we talk about what we loved about it. We talk about all of our favorite tropes. We talk about only one bed, secret places. Secret places, that's mine. You stole it. <laughs> every trope under the sun. Mm-hmm. So to give you a little taste of our show, we're going to play a clip from the episode where we reviewed Lisa Claypass's Dreaming of You. So I started reading this book. And I immediately loved it. (gasps) I love this book. Oh, I'm so happy. This is one of my absolute favorite books in the world. I love Lisa Claypath so much. And if you were not into this book, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is going to be so upsetting to me. I am so happy that you loved it and that we could just fangirl out for the next hour because that's all I want to do. I didn't want to have to defend it. Learning the Tropes comes out every Wednesday, and you can listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. So come check us out.